Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and explore how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. I am here with Yana and Guy from Zora. I'm so excited to have you both on the pod. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks, Chase. It's great to be here. Yes, I'm so <laughs> glad to have you both here. Um, I cannot wait to dive into all of the things and talk media, on-chain media, all of the things that you've both been working on. But before we even do that, maybe we can do a little bit of background on you both, how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole, uh, where where you intersect with media. Maybe we can start with Yana and then Guy. Yeah, totally. Um, so I've been working with Zora uh, for almost two years. And initially, I've led branded marketing at Zora. And when I just started, we were discussing with Jacob and Dee that we wanted to have kind of a media hand and editorial, but not just a blog. We actually wanted to start a cultural publication just because we saw that there was a need for that. Um, not a lot of um, publications at that moment were covering um, culture in Web3. Um, so we launched Zorazine in 2021 in August. Um, and since then, it's kind of been developing um, and we've been, you know, trying to see what direction we want to take it. And we're going to talk later about this. Uh, but um, as I mentioned before, actually on your podcast as well, that um, I started very randomly in Web3. I've been working in culture for uh, most of my life and what attracted me was the community aspect. I love that. Yeah, what about you, Guy? Yeah, so I guess I didn't think I so much like fell down the crypto rabbit hole as maybe had a kind of like slow, gradual kind of like, oh wait, how did that happen? Um, like immersion into the whole space. So I've kind of I'm a writer and editor. I've been working for magazines for basically my entire career, I kind of, the bulk of that, a tank magazine, which is just, I guess, um, ostensibly a fashion magazine based out of London in the UK that kind of started in the late 90s and was really like a kind of product of that era of mixing high and low culture and kind of beautiful fashion editorial and um, unabashedly intellectual essays. And what kind of came with that territory was a sort of commitment to kind of um, a certain sort of like interdisciplinary niche that was very um, interested in both like um, culture, but then also technology and politics and kind of especially interested in trying to talk about all those things in the same breath. And I think just kind of occupying that like sort of um, that kind of like idea space, I just noticed gradually there more and more of the people um, whose work and writing I was interested in was sort of somehow getting roped into this whole thing. And yeah, from there, I kind of um, started dipping my toe a bit in various crypto things. I worked briefly at um, an NFT marketplace called SoFar before joining Zora in June last year. Um, I've also done some work with Zerox Park and Autonomous Worlds in the side, which is kind of exploring um, what the kind of fullest potentials of on-chain gaming might be. And yeah, that's how I got here, I guess. I love it. It's always fascinating to hear how people get in to Web3, especially when you come from a background of culture, which, God, I'm so glad that Zora exists and that you all are doing the work that you're doing because, boy, do we need it. Um, but I guess before we dive into some of the decentralized media aspects of things, 
I'm curious, you know, people throw around the word media a lot, and I feel like people in Web3 love to use the term media to uh, sort of push their own agendas. <laughs> and so I'm curious, outside of maybe even the Web3 landscape, how do you define media? And, and you know, I don't know if this speaks to either of you individually or, or if you each want to give your own definition, but I'm very curious about that. Well, I mean, like if you just kind of Google it, right? Literally staring right now at Google and how do you define media? It says the main means of the main means of mass communication. Um, I think what we're interested in is the channel for uh, communication, and we define ourselves definitely as a cultural publication. We don't have any intention or ambition in going into you know maybe the news or um, <clears throat> kind of being uh, reactive. Uh, type of publication. So I think media is, in my opinion, it's an important channel for communicating a curated uh, point of view that's also feeding the ethics and integrity of journalism, no matter if it's, a, as I said, news outlet or cultural. Cultural journalism has its own kind of, you know, ethics and code. Um, so, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think that idea of communication is really key. Um, and I think to kind of expand on that, um, there's a media theorist called James W. Carey, who's working really fond of, who wrote a book called Communication as Culture, I think in the 70s, quite a while ago. So like pre-internet, pre-any of that, he was just like looking at like telecommunications and radio and was very inspired by like what that was doing to society. And he kind of, he makes this distinction between a sort of like um, an information view of communication where communication is just sort of like passing information from vessel to vessel to a kind of cultural view of communication where he's saying, no, when you put two objects in communication or two people in communication or much larger group of people in communication, you're not just kind of, um, it's not incidental. It kind of reshapes what their worldview is and how they understand the world. And I think in terms of thinking about what the continued sort of value or relevance is of something like an editorial magazine um, in, you know, this kind of age of technological disruption. And you know, a magazine is kind of like the quintessential thing that is increasingly obsolete, but just refuses to die, right? Um, and I think that's where the value kind of comes in, where to like throw in another annoying, like big name, there's a, um, another philosopher called Byung-Chul Han, who has a book on ritual. I can't remember its name, but it's about, he, he's like, it's called like In Defense of Ritual or something, or like, um, yeah, we can put it in the notes. I'm not going to remember it now. But he makes this distinction between um, communication and um, communication versus community and how media can be like a substrate for both of those. And he says, we're living in an age where you have communication without community. And I think the value of a kind of a magazine is to kind of, or media in general, is to kind of, you know, affirm and transform like a kind of common understanding, a basis for culture and connection and, you know, intellectual engagement. And those things very much shape the development of technology. And I think at Zine, that's kind of um, perhaps like a guiding mission of sorts, or at least my understanding of that. Yeah, I really love that. Um and I love the idea of media as sort of affirming this like sort of shared understanding of reality in a way or maybe shared way of engaging with reality. I think 
before, and I want to dive into zine and the thought behind it and and all of those things. But even before we do that, you mentioned, you know, magazines as, as something that really um, seem to just not die out, despite the fact that it seems like that would totally make sense given our current um, just world that we exist in. I'm curious more broadly how you both look at like the media landscape and and where it's going. Like obviously there are things like zines that are popping up that seem to be having like, I don't know, maybe they've always been as popular as they are. But like from at least my own viewpoint, it seems like zines are sort of having a renaissance, especially in um, places like New York, seeing a lot of those things pop up at the same time, which very much feel like they emphasize this like physical um, realm. And at the same time, it feels like we're seeing, you know, the TikTokification of everything. And so I'm curious how you you look at sort of the broad media landscape right now. And then I want to dive into the decentralized media stuff and and what it looks like to sort of co-create in, in more of a decentralized way. I think it kind of, it comes back to what we were just saying about a kind of shared understanding of reality, right? That's my kind of thesis, is that the thing about making a magazine, and you kind of learn this when you work at magazines, is that it's kind of, it's collaborative all the way down. You're an editor and you source a writer and you connect them with an idea you think might be interesting. And then they submit a draft and you make the draft better and you have to try empath like get into this person's head and figure out what it is they're even trying to say. And then that gets um, passed on to another graphic designer. And then like there's a whole kind of like very protocol-based almost like method of deeply collaborative work, which allows you to produce this object, which can then be an anchor for your worldview. So it, it like it's a way to kind of create that sense of connection and community that is bottom up, collaborative, and not kind of um, an enforced top down narrative. And I think there's a huge appetite for that, right? Because if you talk about like the TikTokification um, of like I don't know our brains or our society or whatever it is, um, that's a very private and that's a very passive way of experiencing the world. And I think what something like um, good editorial can do is create an occasion to kind of like experience the world collectively without feeling like it's something that's been forced upon you. You know, you can kind of be part of this shared reality that feels like it's bigger than you, but you can also like be the author of that. And I think the kind of this renaissance in terms of zines is like a way of, you know, kind of um, a result of maybe that kind of deep sense of like alienation and privatization and atomization reaching you know, a kind of saturation point where it's just like, it's untenable and people are pushing back against that. I think what, what I probably would add to this is that an interesting question that you touched on, Chase, about some sort of a boom uh, of independent media happening right now. And I think it's not only because obviously we're seeing this happening in the new internet and the blockchain community. Uh, and that's, you know, very reasonable people just probably getting tired of, uh, you know, working just in the digital sphere, but it's the same thing that has been happening um, for the past few years uh, outside of um, Web3 and also in the cultural communities with, you know, publications like Forever Magazine or um, Drunken Canal just popping in in the New York cultural scene and uh, catering to its players. I, it feels like um, there probably could be a couple of reasons for that. First is just, you know, people miss the tangible products and the tangible ledger, because when we were working on our print issue, we actually um, were, you know, writing the manifesto and thinking the reasoning why we decided to, as, as a Web3 native company, to work on the print magazine. But, you know, the process of putting something on chain and the process of printing the magazine actually is very similar. 
once you print mm. it, you can't change it. And it's it's a ledger of information, you know. Um, and the the second reason is behind that is just I feel like people are seeking their own their own small media and their own uh, small communication channels. Um, and um, I hope my friend Greg Bresnitz from FWB is not going to kill me for quoting on his mm-hmm. term, but he coined a term um, of a micromedia. Um, and it seems like that's exactly what's happening right now, especially with, you know, the larger landscape of a traditional media and the trust that we've, we've been losing to that. It's that people are looking to create their own micromedia uh, and speak to their micro audiences um, and curate uh, the information that way. So it seems very kind of understandable and logical and, and organic right now. Um, and the print is is definitely a challenging medium to work in. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk about this this parallel between printing something and putting something on chain and what it looks like to have this like physical artifact of things that we create that sometimes feel very ephemeral. Um, but I think even like before we dive into that stuff, I know this idea of like decentralized media just feels like a term that doesn't really, I don't know. I don't know if anyone, uh, I'm sure people have defined it, but I'm curious how you both see decentralized media and like what that actually means. I mean, do you think that zine is is decentralized media? Hell no. Zora zine. <laughs> oh, hell no. No, absolutely no. And it's very vertical. Uh, we have like, you know, a strict kind of um, uh, editorial standards and formats. And um, we, we have like a, a very kind of, you know, small uh, editorial team um, that just creates all these ideas and works with writers. But we're very, very interested in experimenting with decentralization. And we've been in the last maybe six months or so with Guy in conversations about the proper ways to do that. Because I think that the biggest challenge is how do you maintain the quality of your content if um, you start decentralizing it? And that's, you know, the biggest kind of thought in our conversations, um, especially with Guy and, and his um, editorial um, background and experience in the traditional media. Um, how do you make it work? And, you know, if you make it decentralized and anyone wants to publish and submit and we receive a lot of, um, you know, peaches and, and submissions, but obviously not all of them are from professional writers or not all of them from from the writers who are actually, you know, taking writing seriously. Um, so that's, uh, that's definitely a challenge. So I'm going to let Guy speak a little bit on this and then we can dive deeper to the decentralization aspect. Yeah, totally. I would say that, like, there's, um, if you're talking about the idea of decentralized media, there's... Um, yeah, firstly, as you're saying, Zine is absolutely not decentralized, nor does it like purport to be. And I don't think um, this is one of those cases where we have to be very careful about like why not just like taking decentralization as a good in itself and asking kind of um, being very careful and diligent about like what is it we want to decentralize and why. So the way I see it is that kind of um, if you look at how you kind of consume and create media now versus like... Um, you know, pre-internet or in the early, like the kind of like earlier days of um, where you like read the news and you buy a magazine and there's a kind of like one-to-many channel structure to now where everyone's making everything, it's going in every direction. There's a sense in which it's like completely decentralized already. Um, and this is true of magazines in general as well, where you often rely on a kind of extensive network of freelancers, you commission writers, 
it's something that kind of exists in a way very far away from the kind of the structure of what you'd like um, think of when you think about capital I institutions or organizations or that sort of thing. Um, and, but what hasn't been decentralized is the kind of that creative collaborative mode of cultural production that I was talking about earlier, where it's not just like this kind of, um, you know, the kind of like the take treadmill that defines social media today, where you're just kind of churning stuff out, just like, um, you're kind of like, you know, saying whatever sticks to reach the broadest possible audience. If you're not writing for a magazine, maybe you're writing for your own kind of like private Substack or whatever, where you don't have an editor. So I think when we talk about decentralized media, what we're really interested in is how can you like, um, or at least my understanding of it, and it's like one of those terms which I think should evolve and should have many understandings attached to it, is how can you kind of like get what was so valuable about um, that, the, the kind of the method of producing writing and like producing ideas that I think magazines at their best are like really, you know, um, well equipped to do. They've just been like hollowed out by this kind of like um, perverse incentive structures and a lack of funding and these like economic models that aren't actually serving creators and are kind of forcing you to do this like trade-off where you have to accept really precarious, often underpaid writing or editing positions in order to access this mode of like collaborative writing where it's not just, you know, um, you put in an idea as a proposal and it gets voted on and it passes or not. It's you put in on the idea, someone adds something to the idea, someone else adds something to the idea, someone fact checks it, someone edits it, someone else provides visuals. And I think how can you take that model of production and, you know, make it not conditional on attachment to this kind of like, you know, hollowed out um, vertical structure is in a question I'm really interested in exploring. And I think that, yeah, we'd really love to continue kind of pushing further as scene develops. What mm. I would just probably add maybe to this very quickly, that um, the ultimate um, editorial decentralized model is that we see right now, it's Wikipedia. Uh, but it is, there are a lot of questions. How, how do you take this model and apply it to cultural journalism? and maintain the quality um, of the outcome. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating too, because I mean, there's, I always struggle with this. Like, it feels like there's a degree to which, you know, the sort of hollowed out institutions that you talk about, Guy, effectively, like, it seems like what they have today is basically just distribution. Like, in a world where you're optimizing for clicks, and, and obviously that's not like, um, cultural media that's a lot more of like news type media but but i think you could probably extend that out to certain like cultural institutions as well that have not gone that, that have gone for much more like of a mass market type of appeal um where like yes in theory it's amazing to have these like decentralized groups coming together but in practice um and and have these like sort of um like make your own micromedia type communities but it feels like in practice, we're also dealing with this weird dynamic of um, distribution being still sort of like queen. And so I'm curious how you think about that dynamic between, you know, creating really powerful, really great um, media and this like weird network effect thing that the modern Internet has created, which basically pushes towards larger distribution networks. Something that comes to mind, which is... um you know, maybe has something to do with why 
when we talk about decentralized media or how can zine be become eventually like a sort of vessel for this idea it's not just like a decentralized publishing tool it's decentralized media it's still like a magazine it's still a kind of aggregate of like a collective voice because i think um in, in like in terms of thinking about like what those kind of what should take the place of those hollowed out institutions and those and how they should respond to those sorts of network effects what i think is quite valuable about something like editorial is that it's a way that you can at once like speak to and affirm an existing audience but it's also inherently open-ended like you don't need an invite to go and buy a magazine um mm. but when you do buy a magazine you get to participate in this community's worldview you get to kind of absorb and enact its values and kind of you know get up to date with all these references it becomes this kind of space where you can both like forge that community and expand that community and I think those sorts of like um, mechanisms where something can both, it's open-ended, but it's, uh, so it's not this kind of like broad, sprawling, infinite, like biggest possible audience network effect. And it's not this like niche group chat of you and like 20 people or something, but it's kind of like operating at a level between those things and allowing those two levels of community to kind of talk to each other. Um, that's like something that's really valuable. And I think that's like maybe kind of, again why you're sort of seeing these sorts of like zines or whatever like in resurgence where a lot of people have retreated away from these large platforms to these really isolated communities over the past like you know couple of years maybe half decade maybe shorter than that and i think what's now re-emerging is like well how do you forge some kind of like connected tissue within that and i think something like media or something like an editorial platform was a fantastic way to do that if I can um, speculate a little bit on, you know, what I would be interested to see is the future of the probably larger platforms that you're talking about, Chase. Um, I think it would be interesting to see when we know there is a platform that's maybe dedicated to a certain either topic or has a certain editorial standards. Um, and then there is a very specific standard for how do people, how do writers, you know, get their pitches uh, and submissions in, but it's very transparent and very clear and it's fully automated. So it's, there is no kind of human factor in this deciding, you know, what this work or that doesn't, if the community voted on it, that just get passed and seeing a single platform accumulating, um, sometimes opposite opinions. I think that's something that we've been all craving, especially when it comes to not just cultural, but, you know, the news media. Um, and that would be something really interesting. And especially one of the latest things that Sapsack rolled out is that they allowed um, writers and, and editors to um, participate in their um, crowdfunding. I think they allocated around $2 million for this. Um, so you can basically, you know, the, the, the tokenization, something that's in the Web3, this is not a new model. But um, if you as a contributor can own a piece of the company uh, and own the piece of the platform uh, that seems really valuable. Yeah. Yeah. I think that really takes us nicely to into like what it means for media to be on chain. Um, so I know you've thought about this around Zine. Um, of course, Zora more broadly is definitely like a big player in, in sort of what it looks like to put media on chain. And so at a very high level, um, I'm curious, what does it look like to have media on chain? Like, are we talking, you know, of course we have like sound and Zora has also done um, several um, like supporting artists and actually putting music on chain. 
we have potentially writing that's being put on chain. So yeah, I'm curious what it, where, where the intersection here between Web3 and, and media is. Great question. Um, it's definitely a journey. And right now, uh, we're experimenting how do text NFTs are going to look like. I think by the moment this is going to go live, uh, we're already going to announce um, our view on how text NFTs should look like. And the problem currently with the system is that nor platforms, <clears throat> nor marketplaces, nor wallets are actually optimized for that. So we're just working behind the scenes on, you know, some wallets and um, talking to um, Zora's core team about how we can optimize this experience. So just watch out. We're going to um, launch and present the new type of text NFT where you can actually read the whole text um, in your NFT in the native visual um, style and design. I haven't seen, to be honest, anyone doing that. And right now it's just the whole space is dedicated to the visual art or video. Even music NFTs have been struggling. So that's something that we're working on. In the ideal world, and this is definitely like a few year um, timeline, and it's, it's unfortunately it's not feasible at the moment, but we're really interested in exploring the idea um, of prominence on chain for texts and writers. So what if you would be able to create a text and then later on if someone you know quotes you um, or just wants to create a hyperlink to your text that you actually can either receive royalties for that or just you know see whatever uh, is happening whatever type of future your piece of work um, is having but this is definitely like a long-term planning and require a lot of engineering work mm. yeah guy I'm curious how yep. you see if that aligns with, with how you think about media on chain. Yeah. I mean, I guess Jan and I have been talking about this a lot, so it kind of, it's hard not to align somewhat. But <laughs> I think I would add to that, that beyond this, like, um, there's like what we kind of see as like those long-term affordances where you can have like provenance and citations and you can potentially like, you know, follow this kind of like trail through a network to kind of, um, you know, trace where, you know, what's informed a certain writer you love or like where, where the idea is coming from and that sort of thing. But I would say just on a more immediate level, just the act of like, um, and Jacob, Jacob from Zora has spoken about this a bit in this essay we published, Clicks, um, Clicks versus Collectors, where just having this different kind of economic model in place where what you're kind of compelled to optimize for as a writer is less like a kind of like immediate, like kind of high octane reaction of just going to generate a lot of traffic. Um, you can instead have this, um, and which you, you normally would receive like compensation in the form of like a one-time payment, I should add. So what having something be collectible on chain means in a very immediate sense for writing is that you now have this like economic model where if you write something and it's something that people are still referring to and still getting excited about and hopefully still collecting, you know, like two years from now, three years from now, rather than in the kind of like very limited, ephemeral, immediate timeline of like, social media and so on and so forth we've been talking about, then that immediately creates like a funding model potentially that's going to enable people to like create those, um, create writing that has that kind of long-term value and is able to kind of like, um, you know, explore ideas and shape discourse in such a way that people are still going to be referring back to it when, you know, the kind of writing that's optimized by the kind of current economics of the digital sphere is you know, kind of the polar opposite to that, really. Yeah, I actually would want to add this, to this that um, I think it's a very different story with um, 
writing or text NFTs comparing to the visual NFTs uh, because we strive to work with people who think long-term and create pieces for the long-term um, usage and that those that are going to be relevant actually long-term. Um, and we've been very kind of quietly minting uh, and experimenting with this with pieces and the mint we you know very purposely put the mint um, forever open because whenever people are going to come back to this in a month uh, in a year or in 10 if they'll want they'll still will be able to mint it and just to kind of add to what guy was saying about the new monetization model this is also something that we've been uh, thankfully to you know our some some of the editorial background and looking how um, non-transparent the compensation um, in in the traditional media is and how you know very kind of subjective it is and volatile we uh, wanted to experiment with, with the compensation on chain and um, we introduced um, splits for all our contributors um, trying to honor them um, no matter if you're you know actually a writer um, or a photographer or even if you're a person being interviewed uh, which is not a very standard practice in a traditional media. Usually, if, you know, someone interviews a person, uh, they say, you know, you get the exposure and that's it. Um, but sometimes, you know, the media is being abusing the person if it's, you know, a prominent artist with the following or something like that. Um, so we usually compensate on-chain and create those splits uh, for people we, or brands or teams uh, we interview. So this is something I know not just we, but other um People and companies that are interested in decentralization of media, they're also experimenting. Um, it's really interesting to see um, when the audience um, is going to be able to recognize the value of it. I think we're yet to get there, uh, but we're excited to be a part of um, you know this wave who contributes to this. Mm. Yeah, it feels like some of this is... Um is kind of pulling on the idea of like uh, remixing with uh, attribution where you play around with the idea of, okay, I'm referencing someone else's piece of work. When I reference that person's piece of work, maybe there's some like royalty system um, where, where it's sort of all uh, interconnected and, and you have this like flow of, of I guess, revenue is a really weird way to put it, but like resources or whatever it might be. Um, is that a fair way to characterize the kind of system that you're thinking, you know, much longer term about? Yeah, hundred percent. Uh, because obviously, right now it just doesn't really exist. You know, it just only if you're uh, a decent publication or a decent journalist, you will quote properly someone's work. But it's a pretty rare case. And guy, tell me if I'm right uh, or wrong. But it's pretty rare case um, if someone will actually get compensated being quoted being quoted no <laughs> but yeah <laughs> and i think it's also it's about like <laughs> um but i think it, beyond just like the sort of attribution of ideas i think it's also like it's kind of the thing i was saying earlier where like one of the best parts about working in editorial is if like someone's like you you email someone you're like please would you write this and they say no i'm too busy but you should totally check out this person because they're really smart and i think that kind of how do you make that value tangible for those involved and like what are the mechanisms you can do not just to kind of um uh you know create attribution in a very like direct sense of like you're quoting x person in x article or you're referencing this thing or you put in a big block quote or whatever but also like what's the kind of the network of people that's made this possible 
and how do you distribute that value among them as like equitably as possible is a really interesting question. Mm. I'm curious when you think about like, maybe you don't have an idea of how all this stuff will end up working out. But of course, there's also this this question around like, if this stuff exists on chain, in theory, you have lots of different front ends and communities and almost like um, you talk about micro media, you almost have like micro contexts where these things arise. Um, in that realm, it feels like what we were talking about originally is sort of like this large capital I institution that maybe is is going to be replaced by these lots of different um, spaces for co-creating this like shared reality. Um, do you think we'll also have these like micro spaces for consuming a shared reality? I don't even know if that question makes sense, but it's coming up for me as I think about what it means to have things that are like on chain as proper media versus like where we're actually consuming these things. The thing that comes to mind is that when when you have um, on-chain media and you have like a list of collectors or a list of attributions or a list of citations and all this like this bundle of metadata that's traveling with the media itself and that isn't attached to it being included in any particular like publication or presented in any particular framing context, um, you have the possibility for like that context to travel with the media itself. And I think that's a really interesting thing as well, that it's not just like um, the the capturing the whole network of authorship that fed into this piece. It's also like, you know, checking a book out of the library and like seeing all the different people who've read this and then potentially being able to like um, forge some sort of connection there. Again, this is very like fast and loose and speculative, but I think that the possibility for like, you do forge communities around these kind of shared cultural objects. And I think for that to be embedded in the cultural object itself, rather than just like, um, you know, it's kind of like its point of origin is a really compelling proposition. Um, that it's not just you're talking about this article in this like private Discord channel. You know, there's a possibility for the article itself to be an occasion for some sort of like, um, you know, imagined community to kind of take form. And if that makes sense, that feels very like <laughs> abstract, but here we are. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think this podcast is very abstract in general, usually. <laughs> but Yana, I'm curious if that aligns with how you were thinking about it. I think a, a question of consumption is really great right now. And it's a big question for the whole new internet, blockchain, crypto, Web3, whatever we call it these days, industry. And we are actually working right now on the even editorial pieces we're taking as a research for ourselves is why people mint. Because mm. obviously blockchain is offering a new monetization model and it's offering a, a new potential and possibilities for the crowdfunding, but so do other platforms like the, you know, Patreon and Substack mentioned earlier, um, and even some of the paywalls, uh, the traditional media outlets. But what blockchain offers what no one else does is the um this provenance and what was the word that you used um attribution attribution exactly um and this is something that it it, it hasn't been explored yet and it, it's super important um for the media landscape for the reasons that you know we talked before um it it will open some potential um 
for the monetization. However, right now is definitely a challenge, you know, consumption, consumption, and what do you do with those NFTs? And that's something that we're exploring. Um, why do people mint, you know, what, what the potential does it have for them? Like, what does it mean to own an NFT? Because, um, obviously like in all those, uh, wars between regions and regions in the regions corner, we understand the, uh, the, the responsibility, you know, and the desire to support a creator. Um, but it's really interesting to explore this case for another corner uh, of Web3 and see what incentives people can find for themselves. Mm. I'm curious if you think, um, you know, one of the things that comes to mind for me around being able to support the creation of cultural work or um, work that feels really important to like a to your point to a group of individuals who maybe are thinking in like this regenerative mindset um one of the interesting things about it is that you end up often having work uh be created that um people expect will create value for the people who would support it if that makes sense like basically you end up having these interesting motivations whereby people create work that they think will be financially supported which i guess is kind of the problem we already have but I'm curious if you think like a very tight and clear sort of web of attribution um, almost creates this like financialization of work that is almost more direct than we have now. And if if that might shape the way that people create or what people create. Not going to lie, we've been playing a little bit with an idea <clears throat> of um, nouns model at the moment. And I think the what we find the most appealing in this whole model it has a lot of flaws, right? But um, what was the most interesting for us is that if there's an ability to give a creator capital upfront and just create the trust in their ability to deliver, it feels like that's going to open a lot of possibilities. Because right now, very few, um, you know, journalists or reporters actually have this ability to take on, you know, some capital and uh, not run and chase, you know, other freelancing opportunities, but just focus on a certain piece of work for a few weeks or even months uh, and do their best in delivering that. Um, I was, I think trust plays a lot in, in the system. And I was thinking a lot about this recently as well, that the whole, you know, regionous uh, corner of work three is actually built on trust and how important it is that we trust each other. Otherwise, it's, it's impossible to build anything. Um, so yeah, I think that this model, um, as I mentioned before, nouns model might actually be interesting for that. Hmm. Guy, I'm curious if you have thoughts on the, the financialization of, or, uh, I mean, I guess all work has been financialized, right? To some degree, it's just a question of like how directly and how obviously. Yeah, I guess I think it comes down to like a question of, um, yeah, what kind of financing is available and in what conditions and kind of um, how are those incentives aligned? So I guess magazines could run pretty like comfortably for a very long time because you had this model of like, you know, um, you create the thing and it draws in an audience which keeps advertisers happy, which gives you money so you can create more content which draws in an audience. And somewhere along the line, that's gotten like really, really disrupted by... Um, you know, the kind of like the, incent the economic incentives of social media platforms has, has been discussed kind of ad nauseum. 
And I think there's definitely a danger of replicating some of that where if, you know, you're like saying a DAO or whatever, and you're trying to think about what kind of, what kind of content's most likely to get the most votes or whatever, um, or is most likely to kind of get executed and you're just sort of, you're playing to a different crowd, but you're still kind of playing to a crowd perhaps. And I think maybe the kind of, um, the critical question there is like, how do you make sure that the creative's incentives are aligned with the broader membership or maybe a different way to phrase that is like who has like ownership of this thing ultimately um and i think you that's kind of maybe why i was trying to emphasize this interdependent model of production earlier where ideally you want the economic incentives not just to be about like your idea getting through or your beautiful pitch getting published but um they're somehow tied to kind of this already existing but severely like undervalued mode of like collaborative culture production that is present in a, a number of industries is a present like across the culture industries i'd say but it's especially pronounced with writing work and it's especially kind of undervalued with writing work um so i think yeah there's an element of like financialization for sure but i think um that work is kind of already underway in a lot of respects it's just not compensated really maybe plus 100 <laughs> on that yeah yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, and I also want to make sure that we have time to touch on the print edition aspect of zine because this is really fascinating and, and we kind of touched on it in the beginning. But um, I guess it would be interesting to dive into at like just a high level. Yana, you kind of talked about it, but why you decided to make a print issue instead of just being fully digital. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we just personally wanted to um, kind of dust off some of our um, abilities and desires to play with print. It's a it's a very interesting project. It takes so much, you know, resources and people. That was a, a very collaborative project, and that was pure collective collaboration because I think we have more than sixty contributors um, from both, you know, text and and visuals. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, we totally approached it as, you know, something that you can't edit or change because whenever I'm thinking about collective collaboration or like, um, creative, uh, collaboration on a piece, I'm also thinking about the timeline because, uh, there's an aspect of just never ending, uh, collaboration. Like I mentioned before, Wikipedia, where you can just continuously edit and edit, edit. but then there is a different type of project where you need to actually put a full stop on it and say, this is done. And in the process of a fully decentralized um, collective creation, who actually makes this decision on a full stop? That's that's another question that I'm mm. interested in. But with the print, um, we were really interested in the idea how, you know, some of the cultural publications, they, um, you can see, you know, some, I don't know, does weekly, some monthly, and some do maybe biannual or annual issues. And it becomes some sort of a... Um, zeitgeist um of uh the the theme and the topic that you're choosing and we wanted to create this collectible um object that hopefully will be you know create um annually and and keep producing this we just really wanted to capture what was happening um at that moment in web3 culture because with the speed it's changing and with the legislation, you know, constantly affecting how the space is being shaped. Um, 
it feels like if you will be able to pick it up like five years from now and look at it, it might sound crazy to you. And you're going to be like, oh my God, this, this is re really what we're talking about, working on. So we just really wanted to capture um, the moment. Uh, and we tried to observe it from the 360. We've talked, the, the, the theme actually is intergenerational dynamics. So we tried to talk to the people who were involved in shaping and creating Web1, um, some of the people who maybe were um, having still, you know, attachment to Web2 or Web2 mentality, and obviously Web3, and kind of see and dissect um, if there is any sort of thread going through all the internet uh, builders' generations and what could be in common uh, amongst all of them. I have to ask, was there anything in common? What was <laughs> just as a, a tangential? Yeah, I think that's actually very interesting because uh, we put this in our manifesto that, you know, uh, especially during the bull cycle of uh, 2021, it was really interesting to see there's this obsession of Web3 builders with uh, Web1 builders. And then there, it was a really kind of a good um, idea and everyone would hype you up on Twitter if you would just um, say anything bad about Web2. It was, you know, very trendy. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was really interesting for us to kind of try and see what um, in common all of those generations could have. And it was really interesting to see and observe that uh, Web2 isn't as bad as Web3, Twitter, crypto Twitter things. Uh, <laughs> and there were some really amazing players and some of the ideas of Web1 or early internet builders, um, they just got diluted, unfortunately. And... Um, it's really hard to just follow through with them. And despite um, I, like very strong ideology of Web3, it we might also fail on them, you know, if we don't stick through. And it's not that easy as it might sound because there's definitely, you know, in 2021, idealism was just through the roof in the whole community. Um, and are we ready to hold ourselves accountable? I think that's the question in 2023. So that's what we've been trying to explore. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say that I think like that kind of that thing of holding yourself accountable also comes with the territory of creating something that's tangible and permanent. And that is, um, as Yana was saying earlier, like the thing about a print magazine is that it's so decidedly like of a moment, but it's also very permanent and like out is kind of built to outlast that moment. And that's kind of what makes it fun to have is to, like look at a beautiful like magazine from 10 years ago and be like, you know, uh, yeah to talk about like web two platforms it's like you can the the scene of like kind of old like fashion magazines from 90 the 90s getting circulated on like tumblr or something and that then becoming this broader you know the kind of like the embers of like another cultural wave or something is a very exciting proposition i think um so i think part of what we are interested in doing in producing this kind of physical tangible object is to create something that is like both attempting to like you know the writing in the magazine and the kind of perspectives we're trying to put in conversation in the magazine are very much interested in trying to kind of combat this kind of historical amnesia and have a more kind of qualified and informed and situated perspective on, you know, where all this comes from and where it's all going. But I think the medium of physical print itself is also a way of kind of like, you know, uh, having some skin in the game in that proposition and also making the object, the vehicle, like the container for all these ideas also kind of um, reflect those discussions in its very form. 
I will just add that it was really interesting for me to go through the process of editing uh, and, and sending to the printer and, you know, pushing the spread button when it goes to the print of the whole material, because I was constantly thinking about the engineers when they're deploying a contract and the code mm -hmm. has to be absolutely perfect. And you probably have like a few um, pairs of eyes looking at it and you just go over and over through the same thing and... It just it was it was like that for us when we were like oh my god did we just make a typo in someone's name, um or you know we just whatever the 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 dot the dot is not there or something like this and you constantly discover new things as you edit it uh, and then you make this decision okay it is ready um and it might not be you might still discover some typos we did our best but um yeah it was there there was something really interesting about this process. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, the parallels between um, doing print and and like committing to something on chain um, and actually going through that process is just wild. And it kind of makes me think that it is insane that so much of the um, cultural like zeitgeist over the last 10 years, I mean, a lot of it has been captured, but a lot of it hasn't. Like, even when I think, I mean, and this is such a weird example, but it, it's because I grew up, I was in like middle school when Vine launched and that was very much, you know, like the the thing in middle school. That whole thing just disappeared. Like that, an entire um, set of reference points that um, me as, you know, a 12-year-old or 13 or 14 or whatever year old um used as this way to relate to like my existence and my friends and all this stuff was just gone um is kind of wild and and so i think there's something i mean really powerful more broadly in thinking about how can we take these experiences that almost like don't exist if we don't capture them in this way and and take those and and allow them to exist but also i love this idea of like holding ourselves accountable in a lot of ways particularly you know not around the existence of a vine but around the existence of some of, like, for example, you guys mentioned the values around um, Web1 that, that we seem to sort of have diluted. And, and so I think there's a really, really interesting dynamic there. And, and I love that it manifested as print. Yeah, we're uh, super, super excited about this. Uh, it's been, not gonna lie, it's been a pretty exhausting process. I think we've been working on it for like more than six months, which is usually uh, a timeline for a biennial issue. I hope we're going to uh, shorten it for the next time. Uh, but it was also interesting to kind of refresh the conversation and be able to reach some of the people who are not yet presented in the Web3, however, they deeply, deeply affected it. For example, like Kevin Kelly, who was um, the co-creator um, of the whole Earth Review and the creator of the Wired magazine and the first editor-in-chief. Um, and he is referenced all the time on crypto Twitter. However, I don't think we actually heard from him, you know, what are, what his thoughts are on, on the blockchain and Web3. So it's uh, really interesting to get this perspective. So I'm, I'm particularly excited about this uh, feature as well, or that we interviewed um, Herbert Franke, who was one of the first uh, generative um, art artists um, and also you know, a, a massive point of influence for a lot of artists. Um, I think it's important, as Guy mentioned, you know, to that we have this um, tech amnesia that we sometimes get back to the roots and inform and educate ourselves about 
um, where it all originated and where it actually started. And it's, in my opinion, it's always um, important to get um, to the original references rather than just uh, referencing references of references. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and I think a lot of things definitely get diluted and often misconstrued in the references of references of references. So um, I'm very excited about the launch of this. Where can people get their hands on a zine? How can, how can they engage in this? Totally. So we <clears throat> are um, selling the zine as NFT. Um, you are able to go with zine.supply um, and get your NFT and later redeem it for the physical copy. You can also not redeem it and just hold the NFT if you would like to. But if you would actually like to get a physical copy into your hands, uh, then you'd have to redeem it. And then we have actually a bunch of really um, fun inserts and surprises in the zine. It's not just the zine. We have also a mini book coming in it, um, one poster and a couple more things. And we also collaborated with uh, a collective that produces hardware. It's called Leachy. Um, and we are going to be distributing 400 pieces randomly to the owners of the zine. Uh, and it's a really cool piece of hardware. We love to see it. I've been very into hardware lately. I think that's, I feel like a lot of people have. Um, well, this was so wonderful. Thank you both for coming on the show. Any last words before, before we close out? <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. Um, yes. Read long form. Read long form and think long term. I think that's what we've been missing um, lately. I love yeah, that. Yeah, I can't top that 100%. Beautiful. Maybe I'll have to start transcribing this into long form content. <laughs> and put it on chain. Read long form and listen to podcasts. Yes. 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 <laughs> put it on chain. Do all the things. Um, Guy and Yana, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so wonderful. Um, real quick, where can people read more about, follow your work, all of the things? Totally. Um, just find us on Twitter. It's a lot of underscores. I don't remember how many zine. <laughs> but if you actually go to um, my profile on Twitter, Yana Sosna, or Guy's profile on Twitter, you'll be able to find uh, zines Twitter and just follow. That's where we post our updates. It's four underscores. I've just done a quick fact check. Thank you, guys. <laughs> so four underscores, zine, four underscores. Um, yeah, that's the best place to read about all things zine. Beautiful. Thank you both for coming on the show. This is so wonderful. Thank you so much, Chase. Thank you so much. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcasts I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening. 